before uh, we talked about truth, I laid the foundation for the approach in this class toward cultural engagement. And I borrowed from James Davison Hunter's book, To Change the World, um, to say that I'm operating from a perspective, uh, what he calls faithful presence within. So he talks about three different strategies Christians have had in North America toward cultural engagement. And he calls them defensive against, relevance to, and purity from. And the, the best strategy, he argues, is what's called faithful presence within. Um, so that's a helpful framework as we discuss um, this class. Uh, and I think it's especially helpful um, as we think through politics and Christianity. Um, ultimately, when we are talking about politics and faith, really what we're getting at is uh, how do I live faithfully as a Christian in the political arena? How does my faith inform my politics? How should Christian faith lead me to engage in what some might call civic duties? And we should rightly recognize that this conversation today is specific to our context in 21st century America. So politics and the Christian uh, would be a very different discussion for the early church facing persecution under Nero. Uh, politics and the Christian would be a very different conversation for Christians living in China or Iran uh, or the United Kingdom today, for that matter. So um, this is focused on um, our American context. So with that said, I'm not conflating American democracy with Christianity, um, but that's simply where we find ourselves. So our context is going to shape the way we think about this. Um, so I want to start by saying the polis is sick. So the polis is a, a Greek word for city. Uh, so if you've been to Focuston, I know Rodney back there, we call the, the, the police security polis, but not that kind of polis. Uh, polis is the Greek word for city, and basically it means our life together in common. So let me tell you how I've structured today's talk. Uh, first, I want to diagnose some of our political ailments. And there are a lot of things that I could have picked to talk about uh, today, but I've just chosen three, and they're not meant to be exhaustive. Um, and keep in mind, this is specific to our context, specifically here at an evangelical Baptist church in North America. Um, and the three political ailments, we'll go into detail about what these mean, um, are political ultimacy, and I'll define what that is, um, the politicization of evangelicalism as a term. So is it a political movement or is it a religious movement? What is it? And then um, Christian nationalism. So we'll talk about what that is as well. Now you might notice one glaring issue that's missing from this trifecta, um, identity politics. Come on, aren't you going to talk about identity politics? And the answer is yes, uh, but not today. We're going to talk about that later, um, March 16th, when we talk about race and critical race theory. Um, and I think it fits into that discussion better than it does today. 
So first, I want to address some of the issues, and then we'll move to a constructive biblical way forward for thinking about Christian political engagement. So the first step is uh, political ultimacy. And if something is ultimate, it's seen as the final or the highest good, the highest value. And so the Christian would confess God as ultimate. Uh, Herman Bovink is a theologian, and the first sentence to one of his books says, God and God alone is man's highest good. I love that sentence. Um, I think it's great. (laughs) But um, political ultimacy would see this worldly concerns and realities as ultimate. And so politics is not content with second place. It always wants to be ultimate. It always wants to be first. And Christians, as we think about politics and political engagement, we can have two different attitudes toward politics. One is apathy, and the other is idolatry. And so political ultimacy would be more connected with idolatry. So those are the two attitudes. Politics is meaningless, or politics is everything. And the reality is politics is important, but it's not as important as you think it is, especially in regard to a single election. Now, we live in a time where every election is the most important election of our lifetime. And in my short political life, since I turned 18, um, I've heard that in every election cycle. So we live in a society where politics is ultimate. And I think that as secularization increases, as the culture becomes more secular, so will political ultimacy, political urgency increases. And there are a number of reasons for that. And the first is I think religion gives people a sense of identity or belonging. And so in our context, for most of American history, many people have had this sense of identity as they belong to a religious community. However nominal that may be, they belong to a group and they have a sense of purpose Um, Their lives and ambitions are oriented around shared common values and commitments. And so what we've seen with the increase in secularization and the rise of the so-called religious nuns, and that's N-O-N-E, not Catholic nuns, um, but with the rise of the religious nuns, people who don't have any affiliation with religion, is that people feel uprooted and placeless. And so I think the people have turned to politics to fill the place that religion once held in people's lives. And their political party gives them a sense of identity and belonging. And then the party's platform becomes comprehensive for their worldview. And so today, you know, we often talk about tribalism in American society now. And this is why. Uh, Because now... We're not merely debating policy with people um, because policy has become so intertwined with our identity and our values. So then we feel threatened when somebody disagrees with a policy position. So then political disagreement is seen as an assault on our person. So we no longer make a political judgment against somebody's view 
on a policy, but we make a moral judgment against them as a person. So we say things like, you know, that person is not just wrong, but wicked. That person is evil. And so you see how that's problematic, uh, especially if that's happening in the church. Uh, I have friends here at River who have different political views than I do. And that type of you know, contempt for someone else really has no place in the church. And when it happens in the church, it's evidence that your ultimate values, ultimate things are getting mixed up. Uh, you're making an important thing an ultimate thing. And that's, that's backwards. <laughs> that's bad. Uh, so what are, thing, what are ultimate things for the church? The gospel, the preaching of God's word, growing in Christ-likeness together, evangelism. And because politics is uh, comprehensive, it's also increasingly urgent. And so the political now is of ultimate value. And so now you have students in certain uh, university campuses that are encouraged not to go to class so they can engage in political protests and political activism. And they have to do the work. Or they quit their jobs so they can protest or be a social media activist. And, and you can see how this works because the thing is the politics of urgency or the politics of emergency works, however good or bad that is. Uh, because if something is a crisis, well, it gets the funding. It gets money. So everything's a crisis. And then what are we left with? Well, the boy who cried wolf. And so I want to say something that might sound a little counterintuitive, um, and that is the urgency exists uh, because politics is connected to eschatology. So it's, politics is connected to a vision of human flourishing, to a vision of the good life or a good society. And Christian eschatology is our vision of our future hope in Christ. Eschatology in in Christian theology is the study of the end times. And so the Bible's vision of eschatology is one of peace, fullness, flourishing. It's a future-oriented promise of the fulfillment of God's kingdom where he restores all things. And so different views of eschatology have shaped Christian political engagement. So I'll just name two. Two common traps uh, for Christian eschatology. One is escapist eschatology, and then the other is what's called an overrealized eschatology. So an escapist eschatology might be more associated with the political right. And um, basically it's the view that says we're just waiting until Jesus comes and he raptures us up and takes us out of this mess, and we won't see justice in this life anyway until Jesus comes back, and there's not a whole lot we can do right now about all this stuff, and the problem anyway is just sin. And the problem with an escapist eschatology is that it minimizes the reality of the material world. So we can become so focused on what Jesus is going to do in the end that we're blind to what he's doing here and now and where we can join him. And so you could say that an escapist eschatology 
focuses on spiritual needs to the neglect of material goods, material needs. So that's, that's one trap. The other trap is what's called an over-realized eschatology. And that's more associated with the left. So this is an eschatology that's ultimately uh, flattened into a this-worldly project. So you see things like um, social justice movements or social gospel movements. And ultimately, I think um, that this type of eschatology is man-centered as opposed to God-centered. So it, it becomes our job to bring the kingdom of God through political engagement and social activism. And so this transcendent eschatology is turned into this humanistic project. Uh, sometimes it's called liberation theology. And so what begins with a gospel, a legitimate gospel concern for justice, lifting up of the poor, providing medical care to those who need it, can turn into this humanistic, idolatrous enterprise. And Christianity gets co-opted uh, by political revolution. And so um, escapist eschatology focuses on spiritual to the neglect of the material, and here, over-realized eschatology focuses on the material to the neglect of spiritual goods or needs and to the neglect of uh, sound doctrine or theological orthodoxy. But the problem with both of those is that God deals with us holistically. We are body-soul unities. Uh, we are material and immaterial beings. We have spiritual needs. We have material needs. And God is interested in transforming the whole person. And so as Christians, we have to navigate that tension of how do we meet our material and spiritual needs. And when either of those is absent or skewed, people suffer and the gospel suffers. So the gospel of Jesus must not be merely reduced to liberation from spiritual enslavement to sin. At the same time, the gospel of Jesus cannot be merely reduced to social amelioration in which radical evil in the human soul is ignored or forgotten. And so those two concerns should shape the way politics, uh, should shape the way that we think about politics and political issues. So those are the two traps, uh, escapist and over-realized. So uh, what is the corrective? And biblically, uh, the proper corrective to both of these is the already not yet kingdom of God. So it's here in part, but it's not yet here in fullness. So Christians shouldn't feel apathetic in regard to matters of social justice, uh, but we should also know that the kingdom of God is not a human project uh, whose realization depends on our effort. Um, it's not on our shoulders, and if it was, who could bear it? So God's kingdom will be consummated in his timing. He will bring it about. So navigating the already not yet seems to me to be the appropriate response to this political ultimacy or urgency. 
Now, the second ailment affecting our politics right now is the politicization of the word evangelical. Uh, what is an evangelical? Uh, if you pronounce it evangelical, maybe you're one kind of evangelical. <laughs> um, so, but really, is it a religious movement or is it a significant voting block of the Republican Party? Uh, because of evangelical support of Donald Trump, uh, some people want to dispense with the term altogether. So the term is too politically charged to keep using it. And uh, for anyone interested in studying kind of the history of evangelicalism, its origins, current crises, issues within it, uh, these are three authors that I think um, deal with that subject really well. Uh, all of them are evangelical historians. Uh, Thomas Kidd was at Baylor, and he's now going to Midwestern. Mark Knoll um, is a well-known historian. He's at Notre Dame. And then John Wilsey um, has written a lot about Christian nationalism. Um, he's at Southern Seminary in Kentucky. So all three of those authors, I think, are great um, writers if, you, if you're interested in studying more about evangelicalism as a movement. But what do we do with that term? Do we use it or not? And I think what I can do to answer that is just to lay out uh, theologically what an evangelical is, and then you can decide for yourself if you want to use the term or not. Um, I think it's helpful in certain contexts. I don't think we need to be ashamed of the label, especially if you're having a conversation about theological distinctives. And so in that sense, I'm proud to be an evangelical Christian. And for me, to be an evangelical Baptist is the most faithful way that I know how to be a Christian. So of course, I'm, um, I'm a follower of Christ first, but uh, being an evangelical Baptist is the most faithful way that I know how to follow Christ. So one of the problems with that label, evangelical, especially with polling, is that it's a self-identifying label. So anybody can self-identify as an evangelical or a born-again Christian. Uh, that person doesn't have, have to have any type of understanding of the historical, theological distinctives to claim that label. So what are those distinctives? Um, evangelical, evangelicalism as a religious movement is not something uh, that arose out of the 1950s. It's not something that arose out of fundamentalism in the early 1900s. It reaches farther back than that. Uh, most historians would say that evangelicalism arose out of the 18th century revivals, the Great Awakenings. And the movement, theologically, is marked by at least four distinctives. And there was a historian, his name was Bebbington, and this is what's known as the Bebbington Quadrilateral. And basically, these are four um, theological distinctives that he characterizes evangelicalism. One is an emphasis on the Bible, so trust in Scripture as totally true and trustworthy. That's biblicism. Uh, the other is an emphasis on personal faith and conversion, uh, emphasizing spiritual rebirth. So that's conversionism. 
Crucicentrism is an emphasis on the atonement, um, the crucifixion of Jesus. And then the fourth is social activism, uh, a commitment to missional cultural engagement. They want to see society transformed. So those are four uh, theological um, contours of evangelicalism. And some scholars would add a fifth one, and that would be an emphasis on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so evangelicalism is not tied to one particular denomination. So there are evangelical impulses in a host of denominations, Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans, Anglicans. Um, Evangelicalism is a global movement. And so it's a mistake to conflate the movement, this global movement, with a pretty narrow understanding of how it's expressed in 21st century America. So ultimately, I don't have an answer for you on whether or not uh, you should use the term. Um, I don't care if you do or not. I use it. Um, But you have to define the terms. So when you're having conversations with people, you have to say, well, what do you mean by that? Um, And then you have an opportunity to clarify what you mean. So don't let people carelessly slap around labels and just assume that you're talking about the same thing. The last and third ailment uh, that I think is plaguing our political life right now is Christian nationalism. So again, similar to evangelicalism, I think the question is, who frames the argument? How are we defining these terms? And I think... um, When we hear the phrase Christian nationalism, we can think of a bunch of white people in red hats storming the Capitol. Um, Or, you know, are we simply talking about a love of nation, a sense of national loyalty, duty, what some might call patriotism? Uh, Some people are uncomfortable even with the phrase or, or recognizing that America is in fact a Christian nation, uh, thinking that such a statement makes somebody a Christian nationalist. Um, but even Marilyn Robinson, she's an she's a author I like. She's a liberal Protestant. She's a progressive Calvinist, so that's a funny combination. Uh, but even she recognizes that America, in some sense, is a Christian nation. It has Christian origins. So all this is to say we need to clarify the terms when we're talking about this. So what is nationalism? Nationalism is an ideology in which the nation and the nation's interests are paramount uh, to the exclusion of any other nation. And so Christian nationalism is the view that America, or any nation for that matter, is God's chosen instrument to bring about his redemptive historical purposes. And so that's the thing about nationalism. Um, We often think of it as purely an American um, problem, but there are different forms of nationalism, Christian nationalism, uh, throughout history. You can even think of uh, the Orthodox Church in Russia, the Russian Orthodox Church. That's a form of Christian nationalism. So it's not unique to America. 
Um, but in American Christian nationalism, many passages in Scripture that applied to Israel are then misapplied to America. And so I think the, the Christian nationalist is somebody whose uh, patriotic sensibilities have become ultimate or idolatrous. And then you misread the Bible through this American lens. So basically, it's a form of syncretism. So syncretism is like the blending of different aspects of religion. So if you grew up in India as a Hindu, and then maybe you came to faith and became a Christian, um, sometimes there's what's called syncretism, where there's this blending of those two religious ideas. And I think Christian nationalism is a form of syncretism that blends kind of American values and ideals with um, Christian theology. And so that, that can become very problematic. And so I think it is unbiblical. Patriotism, on the other hand, is a love of home. A love of the fatherland is what the word literally means. Uh, it's a loyalty to our country, what we have in common with our neighbors. And I think the Bible allows room for a healthy patriotism. We're to submit to the governing authorities as, as those who have been appointed by God. That's Romans 13. Uh, Jesus tells us to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God's. Uh, we're instructed to pray for our political leaders, those who are over us. Um, but biblically, the challenge is we have to remember that we are resident aliens. We are sojourners. We are to live as exiles because our ultimate allegiance is to God and his kingdom. So uh, I affirm a healthy patriotism. And uh, with the founders of our nation, I firmly believe in God's providence as our country was being founded and in our experiment of ordered liberty. And so uh, the religious freedom our country enjoys and celebrates is something that we should be thankful for. And I believe that America is a force for good in the world. I love this country, and it's an honor to serve this country in uniform. And you don't have to be a Christian nationalist to believe that. Uh, my roommate at officer training school was a doctor from Ecuador, and he actually served in the Ecuadorian army, and then he immigrated to the U.S., he became a U.S. citizen, uh, he worked at a bakery in New York City at the time of 9-11, um, he went to med school, then he joined the Air Force. Um, it was incredible hearing his story, and I'm just like, that is an American story. Nowhere else is that story possible. And so I believe that telling our national story is important, but we need to tell it truthfully and honestly. And so the preamble to the Constitution says, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union, and I'll just stop there. <laughs> so we've been given a task, we've been commissioned to do this, to form a more perfect union. But what does that imply? Well, it assumes that we have imperfections. Um, so I, I don't think we need to apologize for American greatness, uh, but we also don't need to turn a blind eye to our faults and our failures. And so in my mind, 
that's a healthy patriotism, uh, one that doesn't idolize the nation, one that isn't blind to the nation's failures. So I think here we need two correctives. Um, if you detest Christian nationalism so much that you shy away from anything patriotic, I think you need to be reminded of the good of healthy patriotism. And then I think if, you're, if you think of yourself as a patriotic person, I do think you need to be honest with yourself and ask uh, when or if your patriotism is actually idolatrous. Now, don't make something out of nothing. I'm not encouraging you to do that, but really uh, look at yourself. Do a heart check. So there you have it. Those are three uh, political ailments that I think are plaguing our political life right now. Uh, political ultimacy, uh, this politicization of evangelicalism, and then Christian nationalism. So uh, with the time we have left, what I want to do is just give a brief, constructive way forward for thinking about uh, Christian political engagement. So as I, as I said, we are pilgrims awaiting our heavenly home. So in the meantime, we live as exiles in our earthly home in the nation. And so we don't seek purity from the nation as we await God's kingdom. We are to seek the welfare of the city while we are exiles in it. That's Jeremiah 29. And historically, there have been different approaches that Christians have taken to seek the welfare of the city. How does that happen? Uh, during the Reformation, basically you had the church who was in charge of the civil government. Um, or you have maybe the formation of a national church, like the Church of England, or the Dutch Reformed Church, or something like that. But I think that the best way uh, for our churches to have influence on public life is for the church and the state to be separate. And indeed, that's what uh, the American tradition has given us. So the separation of church and state is a good thing, however surprising that may sound. Um, the separation of church and state is actually uh, addressed in the Baptist faith and message. Um, of course, there are misunderstandings of what that means, uh, especially pe by people who don't have any uh, religious background. They, they can misunderstand what that phrase means. So here's what it doesn't mean. Uh, it doesn't mean that religion has no place in the public sphere. So the words separation of church and state don't appear in our Constitution. Uh, ironically enough, they're actually found in a letter by Thomas Jefferson to a Baptist community, uh, of all people, where he was explaining uh, kind of the spirit behind the First Amendment. So what the First Amendment actually did was to say, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So what that means is Congress could not establish something like a national church, like the Church of England, and it also couldn't interfere or disestablish existing churches. And so that move actually protects religion from government. And so this American understanding of the separation of church and state is very different from uh, the country like France, 
who their official policy is secularization. Uh, they limit religion to the private sphere. And so again, that's, that's not what separation in church and state means in an American context. So this is uh, from the Baptist Faith and Message on their article on religious liberty. I'm not going to read this whole paragraph, um, just a few sentences here, but it says, the church and state should be separate. A free church and a free state is the Christian ideal, and this implies the right of free and unhindered access to God on the part of all men and the right to form and propagate opinions in the sphere of religion without any interference by the civil power. So when the church and the state are separate, it allows churches to maintain their doctrinal integrity. Uh, The state is not interfering uh, with the content of our gospel message or telling us what we can and cannot teach. Like, um, I forget the name of the church in China. Does anyone know? The official church? I don't know. Anyway, the, the government interferes with that church and um, tells them what they can and cannot teach. It changes the content of the gospel. And so when the church and state are separate, it, it, it allows doctrinal integrity, and then the church is able to focus on making disciples who will live as salt and light in the world and who will live faithfully present in the world. Uh, so now, now that we've talked about all of that, I can address the real reason why I know all of you came to this afternoon's lecture, and that is, who should I vote for? Well, I'm going to tell you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you that. Uh, but what, what I hope I've done is um, just given you some things to think about as you think through these various political issues. And I think what you find is sometimes the Christian viewpoint on a specific issue doesn't fit the bill with either political party. And so what happens is then we need to be reminded of, you know, what are we holding up as ultimate? So, um, like last time, I think we'll just go ahead and stop there, and then if there are any questions, um, we can talk about them. <laughs>